0: This is Scott Richmond, the director for New York and New Jersey for ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, coming to you from the front lines. ADL is on the front line every day fighting anti-Semitism and hate, and this show brings that to you from the WVOX studios in New York. The Supreme Court has been on the front lines for the past year and certainly the past few weeks as they decided a series of very important cases and set themselves up for more landmark decisions in the next term. Each July for the past 23 years, ADL, together with the National Constitution Center, hosts what we call the Supreme Court Review to take stock of the term that just ended at the end of June. Thousands of people tuned in for this year's virtual version. And here once again to describe this year's panel discussion is Steve Freeman, ADL's Vice President for Civil Rights. Welcome back, Steve, to From the Frontlines. Good to be here. So, Steve, is this the largest number of people that we've ever had tune in for the Supreme Court review? It
1: is. Uh, We had more than 9,600 registrants and more than 6,000 who attended. And many of the people who attended um, did so in in gatherings and conference rooms otherwise. So we don't even know yet the exact number, but it
0: was was definitely the largest. Uh, Extraordinary. And why? Why is there so much interest this year? I think it's because it was such a monumental term in terms of the cases on the on the docket and the decisions they, they reached. Uh, so we dominated the
1: headlines over the last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, and I think also we um, uh, word got out effectively. Uh, this was something we were able to do. There was an advantage in a way to doing it virtually and getting word out
0: across the country. We had participants all over the country dialing in. One of the panelists used the phrase a a once-in-a-lifetime term, and another said it was an unprecedented term. What what did they mean by those statements? There were landmark decisions
1: of a kind that we have not
0: seen uh, in a long time. um, Erwin Chemerinsky
1: described it as, he was one of our panelists, described it as the most conservative term since 1931, and the court's rulings were on some of the most divisive issues in American society. Uh, And and in each case, actually, the court, divided ideologically, and moved the law strongly to the right. So we saw a major, major change. We saw very little respect for precedent in some key
0: cases. uh, And very much the conservative position prevailed. One of them mentioned the three themes, and you mentioned being um, conservative. Conservative point of view was dominant. And that precedent didn't matter in many cases, but there was also this issue of originalism. Originalism (laughs) prevailed. What does that mean?
1: The concept of originalism is that a right should be protected under the Constitution basically only if it's in the text of the Constitution or was part of the original meaning or if there's a clear, unbroken historical tradition. And it, in the context of the abortion case, they said that wasn't, that wasn't true. It didn't meet those criteria. The concept of originalism is one that conservatives have been pushing for decades. Uh, upset, frankly, with the, with the Warren Court and cases since then. Where where rights were interpreted as coming out of the Constitution that weren't actually in the
0: language. Can you give us an outline of what happens at the Supreme Court Review and who the distinguished panelists are? This year we had uh, we, uh, the, the program was moderated by Dahlia Lithwick, who is a Supreme Court correspondent for Slate and a, and a well-respected journalist who has had pieces
1: published in the New York Times, Washington Post, and other major news sources. Owen Chermarinsky, who is the Dean of Berkeley Law School. Fred Lawrence, who is uh, the uh, CEO of the Phi Beta Kappa Society, the former president of Brandeis University. Gregory Gard, who is a former Solicitor General of the United States under the Bush administration. And Amy Howe, who is a correspondent for SCOTUS blog, or has written for SCOTUS blog, now has her own blog, uh, who is recognized as an expert on the Supreme Court. And what they do is they talk about uh, they take turns talking about each of the major cases. There's no way to cover everything in the, in the time we have. But one person will
0: summarize the case briefly, and then we'll have a couple other people comment on, on the case and, and its significance. Many cases were discussed, uh, but since our time is limited, I, I want to focus on what I might call the ADL cases. These are cases for which ADL filed amicus briefs uh, because of the close connection to our mission. In what categories did these cases fall?
1: I think the major um cases that we found briefs in were, were church state cases, cases involving freedom of religion and the First Amendment, and there were several of those. Uh we also joined a coalition brief in the abortion case uh, and in one of the immigration cases. But from from ADL's perspective, and I have to go into this in a little more detail if you'd like, Scott, the major decisions that were directly relevant to our most directly relevant to our work involved um the future of the separation of church and state and that whole concept of, of uh, religious freedom.
0: Why does ADL see that as such a uh, an important uh, case to be so deeply involved in? I think for for decades the two clauses in the First Amendment, the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause, have worked in tandem to protect religious freedom. Uh, the, the opening of the First Amendment says
1: Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The Free Exercise Clause is the one that supports the rights of all Americans to practice their religion freely celebrate holidays, worship as they choose, and so forth. The Establishment Clause historically has kept religion out of government and government out of religion. In other words, letting each mind its own business without interference from the other. And that that's meant, for example, not teaching public school children to say Christian prayers. It's also meant not requiring clergy to justify church budget decisions to government officials. It has really protected especially those in the religious minority, uh, and I, and it's been particularly important to ADL for that reason, and also because it has let Jews uh, in this country flourish as Jews, free from government interference and in how they want to worship. But it has also protected those in public school, which is where a majority of Jewish children go, from being exposed to uh, and basically <laughs> directed to
0: pray or preach religious views that they may not uh, share. And what cases in particular are we talking about here that the, the court dealt with and, uh, and decided on? There were two I will single out. One involved um, <clears throat> a public high school
1: football coach who was fired for refusing to stop kneeling in prayer at the football field 50-yard line immediately following every game. The case was called Kennedy versus Bremerton School District. Uh, he, um, The practice had started after the school district directed him to stop leading the team in pre- and post-game prayer, uh, and he claimed that was religious discrimination under the free exercise clause. And the court... Uh, by a six-three ruling, said the conduct was protected by free exercise. What that totally ignored, and why we regarded it as, a, as a problematic issue, was the coercion that inevitably comes from a coach uh, saying a prayer, uh, and and students on the team wanting to be in the coach's good graces, wanting to be you know a chance to play in the next game, a recommendation for an FIS scholarship, and so forth, feeling like if the coach was going to say a Christian prayer, they kind of had to go along. They had to be supportive. They, they, they were, there was at least indirect coercion, if not direct coercion. And that, and that we find very troubling that the court did not see that. But you said there were two cases? Right. <laughs> uh, the second case involved a, um, a Maine secondary school tuition assistance program. In Maine, over half the state school districts don't have public secondary schools. So, to provide for high school education in those school districts, what Maine does is pay for students to attend um, public or private schools which provide secondary education um, and referred to in the law as non sectarian schools, including religiously affiliated schools, but not those that include religious instruction as part of their curriculum. And the lawsuit was brought by parents who want to send their children to religious schools. Uh, and the court ruled that Maine had to provide funding. To these, to those parents, to send their kids to non-sectarian schools. In other words, taxpayers in the state of Maine would now have to fund kids going to religious schools who might be taught views contrary to their own religion, views that are critical of their own religion, uh, and, and that would and and that sort of discrimination would
0: now be re- not only allowed but required under the free exercise clause, which is a very substantial expansion of the understanding of the free exercise clause. A real diminution in the significance of the establishment clause and the concept of, of separation and keeping keeping the, the government out of religious activities and vice versa. So, so this is a uh, a big change uh, in terms of of church state separation, at least uh, in the, you know the past decades, past few decades. Yeah, it, it's 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 a trend we've seen, um, but it, but it also was a dramatic
1: acceleration of the trend. We have seen the court moving gradually. Towards more and more religion in schools, more and more religion in public life, but there was always this um, sort of this line where it would not be, um, it would not be coercive, it would not be to promote the, to advance the religious mission of the religious school. Like they would, find, they would allow funding for a playground, or they would allow funding for for non non-religious subjects. Uh, and now, all of a sudden, they basically have said that the concept of the state religious education is not only something that we're not going to compromise, but it's something that we're going to insist um, that, that the state do, uh, and, and that I think is a real, um, a real change, a major change, uh, uh, an unfortunate change. I, I think that the um, that just in, in the dissent in the case of three justices who were in dissenting, um, uh, you know, one of them in, in the in the high school prayer case. Um, I think it was Justice Sotomayor, said, the decision goes beyond merely misreading the record. They overruled landmark case, they overruled the Lemon v. Christensen case, and called into question decades of, of subsequent precedents. Um, I'm looking at a, a quote from her, where she said, uh, the court rejects long-standing concerns surrounding government endorsement of religion and replaces the standard for reviewing such questions which with a new history and tradition test, which is certainly not, this is my language, certainly not going to help those in the religious minority a a, health history and tradition test. She said it does a disservice to schools and and the young citizens they serve and as as well as to our nation's long-standing commitment to the separation of church and state.
0: Okay, uh, we are coming to the end of our time, and, and unfortunately, it's uh, uh, there's there's so much more to discuss. So I'm going to do something I think a bit unprecedented. I am going to say, Steve, will you come back uh, for a part two because there are more cases to discuss. This was such a consequential term. Uh, so uh, how does that sound, Steve? We can do that. Uh, thank okay, you. okay. Great. Um, So with that, I'm going to say thanks very much, Steve Freeman, uh, not only for being on the show, but of course, for uh, also mounting this extraordinary annual event and for all the important civil rights work that you do all year. And of course, a big thank you to the listeners who tuned into From the Frontlines, either live on WVOX 1460 AM or as a podcast. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud or on Spotify to ensure that you do not miss a show. To search for from the front lines, and please engage in these important conversations throughout the week by following me on Facebook and Twitter. My handle is at Scott A. Richmond, and our hashtag is Fighting Hate for Good.